Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thank you again. Coming out. Starting to get used to Northern Iron. What about ya? Now, I, I'm curious about that phrase, about ya, or what about ya? Because where I come from, if I said, what about you? It's got a mild provocation to it. I'm throwing down the gauntlet. I'm saying, Raymond, what about you? What are you going to do about it? Where do you stand on this? And so when I first heard that phrase, what about you? I thought, well, what what about me? (laughs) I didn't realize it was just a friendly, informal way of saying, how are you doing? Does this gesture mean anything in Ireland? Nothing? Again, North America means money. Money. Yeah, you got to sort of do this, but but this is money. In in Italy, it means what? Huh? What? In Egypt, it means patience. Please give me time. I will come up with the money. An ant, or rather a grasshopper, in the U.S. of A. is a pest. A grasshopper in China is a pet. A grasshopper in Ghana is a snack. Now, I'm saying all this, what about you, etc., because depending on where you stand, depending on where you are, sometimes something that has a resonance for you, a meaning for you, can change quite dramatically. You do this in Ireland, it doesn't mean anything. And in Canada or U.S., it means money. And Italy, what? Huh? What are you doing? Egypt, please give me time. Depending on where you stand, what we say, gestures we make, can mean something very different. It's the same with the kingdom of God. You see, there's a word, and I referenced this a a few days ago if you were here. There is a preoccupation in the church in North America with leadership. Books come out, uh, just loads of them every year, both in the secular sector and in the Christian world, on leadership. How do you lead well? What What are the factors of being a good, solid Courageous leader, etc., etc. It's, it's. I've read a lot of the books. They're great books. But you know what? Uh, we have to remember that when Jesus uses leadership, he means something else by it. The, the default definition that we bring from the world to that kind of language. Jesus completely redefines. Remember the story in Mark chapter 10. His disciples are having a little kerfuffle, a squabble about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows what they're talking about and he calls them together. 
And he says, you know how it is among the Gentile rulers. You know how it is in the world with leadership. That they gauge leadership, they measure leadership by how big your house is, how much of a status symbol your car is, by how high you stand up on the pile, how many servants you have running around doing your bidding, how they can lord it over the other. They have this power to just command You know how it is among the Gentiles. Then he says this, not so with you. Instead, those of you who would be great must be servant of all. And those of you who would be first must become last. And even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, even the Son of Man. You know how it is with those Gentile rulers, not so with you. Now, one of the things I love about that particular passage is that Jesus does not critique, he does not indict the desire in the heart of his disciples for greatness or for firstness. He says, do you want to be first? Do you want to be great? He he speaks into that longing in the human heart to be great and to be first. I think that's good news. It would be terrible news if Jesus was promoting mediocrity. If he says, you know, you guys shouldn't aspire to be great. You shouldn't aspire to be first. You should just want to be pathetic and bumbling at what you do. No, he, he, he speaks to the human heart that has an inbuilt, God-given desire for greatness, but he redefines what that would look like. Do you want to be great? He says, do you want to be first? Well, I'll tell you how it goes in the kingdom. Whatever you've heard from there, the idiom of leadership in the culture at large, you've got to rethink it. Because in the kingdom, it sounds different, looks different. Here's how it goes. He who serves the most is greatest. He who's willing to give up his life for the sake of the many, they're first. I want to talk to you today in my final session about this whole business of servanthood. Even even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That the, the very heart of the mission of Jesus Christ, as he came, as he became incarnate, incarnated the, the sovereign power and goodness and grace of our God, as he came among us, and then as he said to us, as a father has sent me, now I send you. And, and, and Jesus defined the nature of his own leadership, his own work among us, the business he had to do on this earth for the sake of the kingdom, he defined it in terms of servanthood. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You know, I love Philippians 2. Paul is in Philippians 2. I mean, in many ways, the whole book of Philippians is concerned with a church empowered, released, 
to do the mission of God on this earth. Paul says in chapter 1, he says that whatever happens, you people in Philippi, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that whether I come and, or with you again or, or not, that I can know, I can be certain that you stand as one and contend as one for the gospel. Paul is so concerned about how a church would gather together in unity to embody and to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. And he says that explicitly later on in chapter 2 where he says that you live in a corrupt, uh, a, a corrupt generation, a perverse and a corrupt generation, but may you hold out the word of life. Will you shine like stars as you hold out the word of life to that corrupt and dying and perverse generation? But remember how Paul leads up in chapter 2 to calling us to this prophetic and unified witness toward a dying world that the world would be able to look at us and say there's light there. Something shines in the darkness there. Something's being held out to me there among those people that gives me light, gives me hope, gives me life. The word of life is among them. And Paul, to build up to that, starts in chapter 2, and he says these words. He says, if you've tasted anything from Jesus, any comfort, any joy, any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then just make my joy complete and be like that. Has Christ touched your life? Has Christ done a work in your life? Have, have you ever, has any of you ever been in a place of distress and grief and the Holy Spirit has come in the midst of it and given you a peace beyond understanding? I mean, I'm, I should ask, has anybody not been there? You know what that's like. This, this entire week, and I shared this a little bit in the prayer meeting, but I have been speaking to you under a deficit. And the deficit is that I've got a bit of a firestorm going on at my church back home around a, an issue that's happened with a staff member. And so every morning I've had to get up and, and there's been this exchange of emails and it's, it's just, I've been standing up here under a deficit as I've been carrying the burden of that situation. But in the midst of that, I have tasted the goodness of the Holy Spirit's ministry to my deep inmost self in ways that you just don't get when you're not in distress. If any of you, Paul says, have tasted that ever, turn it around for the sake of the body and for the sake of the world. And then he leads up to that beautiful creedal statement. Uh, many scholars believe it was the first hymn that the church ever sang. The, the, the great hymn to Christ let the attitude that is in Jesus Christ be also in you. That though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead emptied himself and became a, in very nature servant. And you know this. And God exalted him. Isn't it interesting as Paul is looking to Jesus Christ as the source of our life as a model for what it is to be uh, in this world holding out the word of life and he looks to Jesus Christ that, uh, that of all the things he might point to about Jesus for us to emulate, to model first of all he picks not an action 
or a conviction or a discipline, he picks an attitude. Let the attitude that is in Jesus Christ be also in you. Because you can fake actions. And you can undertake disciplines without your heart really being in it. And you can have convictions but, but lose your first love. And Jesus, uh, Paul says, I want the very thing that shaped the heart of Jesus to be shaping your heart. The word in the Greek for attitude literally means this. An attitude is where your heart goes when your heart's left to itself. Where your heart goes when your heart is left to itself. That's what an attitude is, according to the Greek. Where does your heart go when it's left to itself? And and Paul says that, I'll tell you where Jesus' heart went. The, the, The natural disposition, the tilt of Jesus' heart in most self was toward something. I want the attitude that was in him where his heart would naturally flow, that to be at work in you. So Paul doesn't pick an action or a conviction or a discipline of Jesus. He picks an attitude. And then of all the attitudes he might choose, he chooses one. He might have chosen courage. I want the courage that's in Christ Jesus to be also in you. You know how a bunch of bullies could could come to him with a woman that they've dragged out of adultery. And she's covered, barely covered with a, with a blanket and she's shaking. She's terrified and they're going to stone her to death. And there's all these men and they really want to get Jesus. They don't really care about the woman. They want him. They want his head on the platter. Jesus just, hmm. Do it. Go for it. Here's the rules. Any of you got no sin? Have at her. That's courageous. <laughs> he could have said, I want the courage or the generosity or the kindness of Jesus to also be in you. But he chooses out of all the things he might select out of the character of Christ an attitude and one attitude. Would you be a servant like he's a servant? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. At the very heart of who Jesus Christ is, at the very heart of the incarnation, at the very heart of the mission of God, embodied and loosed in Jesus Christ, is servanthood. Jesus, not just acting the part of a servant, but in what? In very nature, a servant. Let that be in you. Is also let the, the flow of your heart, what your heart does when your heart's left to itself, is begin to dream again. How can I serve? How can I express greatness and firstness in acts of greater servanthood toward this dying, broken world? And I think when Paul wrote that from Philippians 2, I, my personal conviction, I don't have any textual evidence for this, My personal conviction is that he was thinking of Isaiah. And he was thinking of the great prophet looking forward 800 years to the time of the Messiah. And as you probably well know, Isaiah distills the the promise 
and the hope of the Messiah's coming in four songs called the servant songs. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah, um, uh, Isaiah 42 rather, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then that great one beginning in Isaiah 52 verse 13 through uh, the end of chapter 53. And these incredible songs that says that the, the one that is coming, that will carry the burdens of the whole earth upon him, the whole of humanity, the, by his wounds, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. That the, the, the clearest Old Testament prophecy of Christ is contained in those four songs, the four songs of the servant. And I think that's what Paul was thinking, that, that at the very heart of who Jesus is and the very heart of the mission of God is this call to be a servant. My, I mentioned my first night here, Roy Bell, who attended the very first worldwide. He was just a young lad of 10 or 11 or so, and he's gone on to serve several generations of pastors and missionaries in Canada and beyond. And uh, it turns out Raymond uh, grew up uh, there. He was, uh, you and a few others were young scallywags with um, Roy making trouble here in Bangor. And that uh, you, you told me that a number of you felt the call of God in your life. My, uh, for a number of years, Roy has been my mentor. And he shared with me a few years ago that he carries in his wallet and he pulled it out of his wallet and it's this little creased piece of paper and it's a quote from Isaiah 49 verse 6 one of the servant songs now the actual quote is this it is too small a thing for you to be my servant and it's a promise that God makes to the Messiah that because of his faithfulness in redeeming Israel, God will entrust him with the entire world. But what my mentor, Roy Bell, has done with that is he's turned that statement, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, into a question. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? And Roy shared this with me. He, he was in pastoral ministry for over 50 years. He led some of the biggest churches and most influential churches in uh, the western part of Canada and then went on to one of the most influential seminaries in, in the world, actually, Regent College and Cary Theological College and taught for a number of years theology and in preaching, etc. But Roy told me this, that he would have those days in ministry where he had run out of compassion. <laughs> he'd just run out of himself. He'd run out of caring about people that sometimes would wound him and hurt him, trying to deal with all the mess and all the conflict that sometimes churches can get up to. And he says when he'd have those moments where he would say to himself, I'm... I can't do it anymore. He'd pull out of his wallet the little piece of paper. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? Are you still willing to serve the King of Kings? 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What I want to do in the time remaining, I'm going to leave a little bit of time uh, at the end for us to respond to what God has been doing, not just in these morning sessions, but throughout the week, and just give uh, this Holy Spirit some room to speak afresh what he's been speaking to us and to seal that up and then to, to call us forth from that. But in the time remaining, I want to take you through a whirlwind tour of some stuff in the Gospel of John because it occurs to me, I'm about to begin as soon as I get back to my church in Vancouver Island, that I'm about to begin a a whole series on the Gospel of John, but it seems to me that John particularly emphasizes this theme of the mission of Jesus Christ being carried forth in, in uh, acts of radical servanthood. And, and we see the kingdom of God move forward as Jesus comes to serve, not to be served, and as more and more people are drawn into this, this, this nature of servanthood, this attitude of servanthood. So I'll go very quick. I'm just going to, I'm not going to read the passages except for one, the chapter 12 passage that is mentioned in your um, outline of the sessions that I've been doing. I'll read a portion of that. I just want to show you how this works. Chapter 2 of John's Gospel is the famous story of Jesus turning water into wine. John says that it is Jesus' first miracle. The word first in the Greek is archaea, and it could more naturally be translated this was Jesus' greatest miracle. I'm not going to get into why that might be so, but I think that is so. that I think that Jesus is doing something in terms of demonstrating his power. Well, let me just say this comment. What happens to water when you leave it to itself? Does it ever ferment? It stagnates. You see, when Jesus does other miracles like the feeding of the 5,000, he's at least working with a seed that he just simply has to multiply. When he works and transforms water into wine, the, the, the meaning of that story is you can hand Jesus that thing that left to itself or left to your own devices will just get worse. And you put it in his hand and he will give you the best at the last. It's good news. But water into wine, remember the story that Jesus, uh, you know, this little problem that develops at the wedding. And, and, and it says, Jesus says, calls the servants over and he gives them instructions, pour water into these ceremonial water jugs. And then serve it to the, um, first the master of the banquet and then it goes up to the guests. And in, somehow in, in, uh, along the way, as they pour the water into the jugs and then pull it out and give it to the 
master of the banquet, and that disperses to the crowd. Somewhere along the line, the thing, the alchemy happens. The trans, transformation happens, and it becomes this very, very good wine. And it says explicitly twice in John 2 that nobody knew what was going on except what? The servants. The master of the banquet didn't know. Only the servants know. The servants have an inside picture of what the master is up to. Now, I want you to hold on to that, that only the the servants know what the master is up to at that point. You go into chapter 3, and John the Baptist is... His disciples come to him and say, does it bother you that you used to have all these people clamoring around you and now they've all fled and they've gone and followed Jesus? It doesn't bother me in the least. I must become less. He must become greater. And then he uses this great metaphor of the bridegroom. And he says, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man. And I didn't, it, it's not about me. My heart thrills when I see the purposes of the bridegroom, the purposes of this man being fulfilled. I'm watching that. I'm totally content. That's what I came to do. In other words, he's saying, um, I came to serve. So the servants know what the master's up to. The friend of the bridegroom comes to serve the bridegroom. The servanthood theme starts to, to sound like a steady drumbeat. Boom, boom, boom. It's about serving. We get into chapter 4 and the woman at the well saying, and what really, there's a lot to that, but, but it begins with Jesus asking her, would you serve me? Can you give me something to drink? And then through the course of the conversation, he turns and serves her with the ultimate gift. Can I give you something to drink, he says. Can I give you living water? Well, you don't know who I am. Yes, I do. I, I know that you've had five husbands, you're living with a man, it's not your husband now. I know who you are. You're still offering me this? Yeah. Can I serve you? It's a really, the theme of servanthood is loud and clear in that. We come to chapter 6, and it is you know, John's version of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's again a story of servanthood. Jesus, send these people away. Mm-mm. You serve them. You feed them. What, what are you talking about? This would, do you know how much money it would take? And then Philip says, it's only in John's gospel, but here's a boy. Here's a boy ready, ready to serve. Here's a boy who could go off by himself and enjoy the lunch his mom packed for him. And he would be quite content, quite full. He could look after himself. But here's a boy willing to take the risk because he trusts Jesus that if he takes what he has and he relinquishes it to the hands of Jesus Christ, that not only will he be able to eat, but so will all the rest. Here's a boy. It's a story of servanthood. Jesus calling the disciples to this radical act of trust and servanthood and this boy who represents what we're all to be. Will you bring the meagerness of what you have and rather than hoarding it to yourself, will you entrust it to him and see what he could do? Chapter 12 is begins with uh, that scene I used the other day, Mary and Martha, and we found out that Martha serves... <laughs> And Mary washes Jesus' feet. Mary serves as well. 
Uh, here, let me read a portion of, I think, what is a really summary statement in some ways in John's Gospel, chapter 20, or chapter 12, I'm sorry, beginning in verse 20. This is after the raising of Lazarus. This is after um, the scene at Lazarus' home. This is after the triumphal entry. And it says in verse 20, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip turned and turned told Jesus. Now Jesus replied. So here's the scene. I just want you to, you know, I mean, it's, it's um, Philip gets the guys together and they have a little, little, little conversation and there's some Greeks. I mean, this thing's already going worldwide. It's not just the Jewish community. Some Greeks are ready to, I think they're ready to cross the line of faith. Well, I know, but he said we're to go to just Israel. Yeah, but I think he's, I think, I mean, he's been hinting all along the things worldwide. I mean, this thing's going to reach Bangor at some point. It's going to reach Vancouver Island. So I think this is, the door's been opened. Let's go tell Jesus. So they come, and ma'am, you'll be Jesus today. And he says, uh, Jesus, some Greeks here to see you. And listen to, to what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life this world will, in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Like I'm just going to pause there. Here's the... The, the curious thing, I mean, the, the, the mission to the Gentiles is about to open up here in John chapter 12. The worldwide enterprise of the gospel is about to radiate out from here. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, some Greeks want to see you. And he goes into this weird riff about, you know, unless a wheat falls to the ground and it dies and it springs up. And then these three things about a servant... Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And he goes on and says some more things. He never goes out and talks to the Greeks. Do you ever find Jesus frustrating? Do you ever find that, you know, he doesn't seize the moment like he ought to? You know, how, Jesus, how, how could I, how do I get saved? I know, what do you think? Well, you've got to be a good person. Ah, great answer. <laughs> Jesus, um, um, what else do I need to do? Sell everything, give it to the poor. Guy walks away sad. Jesus doesn't chase him. Does it ever frustrate you that Jesus doesn't seem to seize these incredible opportunities? Well, he doesn't seem to seize it here. Here, the whole mission to the world could open up, and he just walks away and, and gives this strange little speech about dying and servanthood and whatnot. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Men, I am going to die soon. 
the wheat is going to fall in and it's going to spring up a hundredfold. And many, many people will come knocking on the door from all tribes and tongues and nations, not just the Greeks, but the whole world will come looking for me. And you know where they will find me? I need you to get this right now, guys. You know where they're going to find me? When, when just in a few Hours, actually. This is leading up to the, the, the crucifixion of the Savior. In just a few hours, when they come knocking on the door and they're saying, can we see Jesus? Do you know where they're going to find me? Uh, uh, not just one of me, but a hundredfold and a millionfold. Everywhere they go, they'll find me in the one who serves me. They'll find me in the servant. Where I am, my servant will also be. When they come... And I believe this, I believe that the hunger of the world, no matter what they're looking for, is deep down, they're looking for Jesus Christ. It was G.K. Chesterton that says that every man knocking on the door of a brothel is actually knocking on the door of heaven. That their hunger in the heart of humanity is for Christ. Sirs, can you show us Christ? Madams, can you show us Christ? And Christ is saying there's a day coming where you're not going to be able to just walk in and bring me out. But where my servant is, they'll get a glimpse. Well, to go on quickly, the next chapter 13 is it says that Jesus, we begin the upper room discourse at that point. It says, it begins this way, that after the meal, Jesus knowing that all power was under him and that he'd come from the Father and was returning the Father. In other words, he knows that he's totally endowed with divine potency. He is the divine potentate. And it says that he takes out his outer robe, he wraps it around him, he kneels and he washes feet. And he says, I want to show you, John says, and he wanted to show them the full extent of his love. By how? By washing feet. And then he says, you know what? If you do this, if you serve in this ways, you'll be blessed you'll show the full extent of my love to the world if you serve. Chapter 21, when that last encounter with Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Would you do menial, ordinary acts of servanthood? But here's uh, where I want to kind of draw this to a conclusion. Remember John 15, which is one of the most glorious parts of John, where if you abide in me and I abide in you and you'll bear much fruit to my Father's glory. If you really want to be fruitful, the kingdom of God. If you really want to see the efforts of you as an individual and the church in Bangor and beyond really bear fruit to the Father's glory, because that's the only thing that actually will glorify the Father is that you in your life and in your corporate body would bear fruit. It's by abiding in Jesus. But Jesus says this in John 15. I no longer what? Call you what? Help me. Servants. But I call you what? Friends. And then he says, because a servant what? Doesn't know what his master is up to. Now, I'll stop at that point. You're saying, you're kidding, Jesus. I mean, right from the beginning, it's only the servants who knew what you're up to. Jesus, are you forgetting the water and the wine? Your friends didn't know what you were up to. 
your servants knew what you were up to. Have you forgetting this whole story that it's, it's the servants, the people that are eating the meal, they didn't, they're not sitting there saying, where did all this food come from? It's the servants who know what you're up to. You point and you say in John 13, if you really want to know what my love looks like, I want to show you the full extent of it. I'm going to take all the power of the universe and I'm going to wash your feet. And that's in the upper room. Only the servants know what the master's up to. You see, I think this is what Jesus is saying in John 15. Not, hey guys, you finally get to graduate and you don't have to wash any more feet. You don't have to put serving towels over your arms anymore and and make sure that hungry people are being fed and lonely people are being included. Man, you have graduated. Now you get to go and do leadership in the way the Gentiles do it. You lord it over people now. You. I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think he's saying, I'm going to call you friends because you finally get that at the heart of my kingdom is servanthood. I don't call you servants anymore because you finally understand the nature of my friendship, which is you will give your life as a ransom for many, and you did not come to be served, but to serve. I wish. I I, I get a sense. I have been so blessed by you Irish. I said to a brother today, there's just a sweetness about you, and I know you've got a world reputation as a bunch of scrappers and all that, but... My goodness. But I wish the church in North America could wake up to the power of Christ incarnate, Christ on mission through us, that the, the, the Christ has been springing up a thousandfold when we will just get on our, our knees and we will serve. That we're so entitled over in, in North America. We want political power for all the wrong reasons in North America. My friend Gary Nelson, I'll close with this, and then I'll just open it up for a time of um, just letting the Spirit minister. Uh, Gary Nelson is, until just in June, this past June, for the last 10 years, led the denomination that our church is part of. Amazing man. And he, he just, he's just been a real friend to me and a real blessing to me and a real mentor to me. But he told me a story a couple of years ago where he was in Africa and he met a Muslim man. And this Muslim man was a, taught at one, a prestigious university and he was a scholar of Islam. He knew his own religion through and through. He knew the Quran, his holy book through and through. And he said to Gary, who's an incredible theologian in his own right, he said to Gary, you know what the difference between Islam and Christianity is? And do you know what the difference between the Quran and the Bible is? Well, that's, you know, here's an expert in Islam and the Quran. It's pretty interesting to well, what do you think? I don't know. What, 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 what do you think the difference is, Gary said? He says, uh, Islam is a religion for ruling people, and the Quran is a book about how to rule them. 
how to rule the world. The Bible is a book for a marginalized and oppressed people. Or rather, Christianity is a religion for marginalized and oppressed people. And the Bible is a book about how to serve the world. So listen again. Islam is a religion about, uh, is a religion for a ruling people, those who get to lord it over. And the Quran is a book about how to rule the world. Christianity is a religion for an oppressed people, and the Bible is a book about how to serve the world. Pretty stunning, eh? What the Islamic scholar said next to Gary stunned him even more. This is a devout Muslim speaking to a devout Christian. He says, you know, Dr. Nelson, this is a most attractive thing about Christianity and the Bible. And it's too bad that more Christians don't understand their own religion and don't understand their own holy book. Because if they did, and they really lived it, they could change the world. We could turn the world on its head. Would you... Right now, just we've got a few moments. Would you just let the Spirit of God minister to you? Whatever has been said today, throughout this week, anywhere in this conference, out in the streets, in coffee shops, would you just let the Lord speak it afresh to you, seal it up in your heart, and give you the next step? I just want you to take a moment in silence, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you're not like other kings. You know how it is among the rulers of the Gentiles. They like to lord it over. Among the king of kings, who has all the power, even the greatest king of earth, his power derives from the king of kings. As Jesus said to Pilate, you have no power except it was given to you. But the king of kings is not like any other king. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then he said to the church, as the father has sent me, I'm sending you. 
God, for too long, I know, I don't know what the situation is here, but I know in North America, for too long, we've thought that we could bring about the change that we long for and pray for and we believe you long for in the world by means other than the cross of Christ. Father, I'm not saying that we ought not to have good men and women who love you in politics and the police force and the military. God, we need your salt and light everywhere. But God, when we try to reach for the instruments of worldly power to break down the strongholds, they fail every time. But when we use the weapons that are not of this world, but that have divine power to demolish that stuff, it works every time. And so, Father, would you stir up in each of us as individuals and all of us as part of the body of Christ a desire to gain power for the sake of serving, washing feet, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, all the things we've been hearing about in such inspiring real-life ways throughout this week. God, whatever you're speaking to the hearts of men and women right now, I believe throughout this week you've been saying different things to each of us, but whatever over in the last few minutes you've just said, don't forget. I want to seal this up for the sake of my kingdom, and then I want to you to walk it out, live it out for the sake of my name. God, I pray today if we've heard your voice, we would not harden our heart. So I praise you and thank you for this time among these good people. God, I pray for the event tonight. I do pray Simon would rise up, even if he remains in physical weakness, in great spiritual anointing. I pray that many young men and women tonight and maybe some not-so-young men and women would hear and respond to the call of God in their lives. I pray for the events that will happen throughout tomorrow with the children and then the closing event. God, you're not done yet. And we say yes. And we say it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much. I will be just signing over here. This is, um, I, I normally don't wave around my own product, but... Um, the exciting thing for me is this is the first time I've been able to hold my, my own book that just came out, um, and they've got it over here, and it's cheaper than you'd, I'd, I'd pay for it over in, in uh, North America. It's called Spiritual Rhythm, and they've got a whole bunch of copies back there, so God bless you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.